Hey there, welcome to Subject Matter Season 4, where we're discovering how to build a strong company culture. We're learning from fast-moving founders and CEOs and how their cultures make customers want to work with them and talent want to work for them, in some cases completely remotely. I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, the founder of Astutely, and our team is dedicated to supporting B2B leaders to build aligned company cultures at scale. And now, let's get into today's episode. Today's interview is with Tanya Ramos-Puig. Tanya is the president of the Latin Grammy Cultural Foundation. As the top executive in the organization, she is responsible for advancing its mission of furthering international awareness and appreciation of the contributions of Latin music and its makers to the world's culture. Over the past two decades, Ramos Puig has devoted her career to improving educational opportunities and life outcomes for youth in the most under-resourced communities, including most recently as CEO of Pencils of Promise. In today's episode, we learn why when Tanya started her new role at the Latin Grammy Foundation, she went on a listening tour first before setting a single goal. We learn the importance of communicating expectations to be an inspiring leader, and we learn how to use workflow mapping as a tool to clearly understand your team. This is a great conversation packed with insights, and I hope you enjoy. Tanya, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Ben, it is such a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for including me. So I thought that we could start today with your new vocation as president of and CEO of the Latin Grammy Cultural Foundation. Now, as a CEO who's leading a team in a different city, and you mentioned that you're in Miami at the moment for a week every month, there seems to me to be a big onus on maximizing the time that you spend with the team. So given that you are just adjusting into this new role, how are you thinking about really maximizing every second that you spend on the ground with your team? I joined the Latin Grammy Cultural Foundation just three months ago, and I thought it was really essential that I prioritize in-person time with the team. As we all know that we've all moved into a very much, very much a remote culture. And while much of our work will continue to be remote, every time I go to Miami, my purpose and my priority is to spend quality time with the team, opportunities to really get to know them on a personal level, be able to spend in-person time prioritizing our work, motivating, inspiring, encouraging. As you can well imagine in the nonprofit sector, no one is here to get rich. They're here with a purpose. And that purpose is to leave the world better than they found it. So I find myself always looking to inspire, motivate, and encourage my team whenever I'm with them. It's an interesting combination of attributes that you're aiming to deliver to your team. Let's start with inspiration, because I think this is a, is a very powerful force for humans to help realize that potential and kind of move towards a path. So how do you think about inspiring? What are the, the ways that you deliver that inspiration for the team? And, and what are the outcomes that you're aiming to have as a result of that inspiration? When you look to inspire teams, you want to arrive with your authentic self, right? You want to operate from a place of empathy, a place of humility, being able to articulate why we do this work. And so I think with every meeting, every interaction, we want to go back to that place of purpose. Why do we do this work? How are we changing lives? Why are we committed to ensuring as it pertains to the Latin Grammy Cultural Foundation, that we're providing access to a quality education, that we are promoting educational equity, that we're creating future Latin music creators. So I think every conversation always has to bring us back to why we're here and what our purpose is. I like to say that I inspire by approaching every conversation with my authentic self, by instilling those reminders in our conversations and being an active listener. I think it goes a long way for a team when they believe they're being listened to. That in and of itself can be very inspiring. It also seems to me it's not just 
the benefits of having an authentic leader, but by active listening as well, I can imagine that you draw out the more authentic sides of your team too, because they feel really heard and appreciated. And because you're there holding the space for them, they feel safe and comfortable to be able to express themselves how they want to and to show up to work fully themselves as well. I think there's also a place for vulnerability. I've learned throughout my career that a leader that can approach work with humility and empathy, but also be vulnerable and be able to make mistakes and be able to acknowledge them and to give folks the space and the grace to be able to make a mistake and be able to learn from it. That's essential. It provides a very supportive environment for growing and learning. So what are the ways that you would deliver that to a team? So coming into this new team where I would imagine some of them have no prior context of working with you, how do you set that ground rule of saying this is oh, it's okay to make mistakes and to be vulnerable in that way? How would you approach that? So I did a lot of um, what I like to call my listening tour when I first arrived. Mm. So I met with each of the team members individually. And this was not primarily to learn what they do every day or what they bring to the work, but I wanted to learn about who they were as individuals, the things that made them tick, the things that lit them up, the things that they found challenging, what their hopes and expectations were of their new leader. It was really what I like to call a leader integration conversation where I was learning much about what motivates and drives them, but they were also in turn learning about me. I think to be an inspirational and supportive leader, you have to communicate expectations. So before that expectation setting conversation happened, I wanted to learn about who each and every one of them were. Uh, We also prioritized having some social time. We all went out to dinner, got to know one another. I think developing trust and rapport out of the gate is huge. Then I wanted to hear from them the direction that they thought the foundation should be going and what they needed from their new leader. I was stepping into a role that had been occupied by a beloved leader for more than seven years. So it was really important to hear from them what was working, what wasn't working, and what I could potentially bring to the table to offer the level of support they needed to grow and thrive. Um, Really Mm -hmm. articulating my commitment to each and every one of them. I think our largest asset are our team members. And I wanted them to know that that was where my head was. And that was a priority of mine. It's fascinating because there's, before you even talk about the first objective or the first work goal, there is all this work, all this foundation that is laid with your team so that you can understand each other better. So you understand what their expectations are for the role, what success looks like, and what success looks like for you. And what I really like about this approach is that it strikes me as much more of a two-way conversation than a one-way presentation. I think it's very easy when you are in a position of leadership to step into that powerful role and say, here's how things are going to be done. But the sense I get from your listening tour is you were learning, tell me about yourself, and then I'm going to tell you a bit about myself. And then you can see where the expectations align and where they don't align. And then before you've even set your first goal, you're way more calibrated together and aligned towards the same purpose. I think it was important for them to know that their leader had a growth mindset and that Mm. I was committed to learning and listening and honoring the contributions that they made prior to my coming on board and growing together. And, And to your point, when team members are feeling listened to and they recognize that there isn't necessarily a prescription to how we need to work together, it has to be both ways, right? I need to be able to pivot and I need to be able to flex in the way that I would hope that they would flex for me. And being able to be really clear about what that looks like gives folks a level of comfort um, and understanding and Mm. promotes success. You said something really interesting there around this 
there's no prescription and you have to be flexible to their needs. And something that really struck me from the last time we spoke, you, you said this line that I love, which is, I'm an introvert playing an extrovert in the world. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you, you really end up with both ends of the spectrum, right? You have, uh, on the one hand, you have extroverts who get their energy typically from social situations, from people, and then introverts who get their energy from spending time alone, needing the time to recharge. And it's not a case of one being better or worse or right and wrong. It's just different. And given that your team will have potentially dozens of these different combinations, how do you think about having empathy for the different ways in which people work. So given that you're applying this kind of non-prescriptive or flexible approach to bringing teams together, what are some of the ways that you would show empathy for their different working styles? I move into every opportunity with a growth mindset and recognizing that I have to get to know the folks that I work with. And there are things that work for me, right? Relative to how I operate in the world. But I want to ensure that my team members feel like I'm meeting them where they're at. And let's be clear. I think it's important to set expectations, to set ambitious goals. I think it's important to be very clear about what one is hoping to get out of a mutual working relationship. But I think what's key is when you're able to demonstrate to your team that you're going to meet them where they're at. And that you're going to learn enough about them to be able to create a working dynamic that will work for the both of you. And so there will be some adjustments that I will make. There will be adjustments that my team members will make. But I think when you're communicating the ultimate goal and you continue to motivate and ensure that folks have a say and that they're able to contribute and are able to be a part of feedback loops, that's essential to making folks feel supported. And I think that is crucial to leadership growth. My goal as a leader is to ensure that they're not only being successful in this role and the work that we're doing globally, but that they feel that they're growing as an individual and that they can take those skills wherever they go. I operate from that lens. One of the words you used a second ago was creating these adjustments, both adjustments in yourself and adjustments in the team as well. And those adjustments are powered by feedback loops, as you said. In the school of thought of implementing feedback, I think there's two broad categories. You have the more systematic approach where you would say like, once a month, for example, a friend of mine runs a company and once a month he has his operations department figure out what's the next system we're going to automate. And so they gather all their feedback and they tackle that every month. On the other side, you have this ad hoc approach where you see the feedback and you instantly revise it and do these kind of micro pivots. Do you have a preference for either one of them kind of having a more systematic approach to implementing feedback or a more ad hoc approach? I do a combination of the two. I think there's value in having something very structured, like every six weeks, where you're able to solicit and give timely feedback. But I also believe that teams that are supported by leaders that really care about their team members are constantly engaging in feedback. After every meeting, they're debriefing meetings, they're asking. I When I meet with my team, I remember being in Miami, one of the last visits, and I said to them, so tell me, I'm 90 days in. What am I doing well? What are some of the things that you need more of? And they were really forthcoming, and I greatly appreciated that. And in turn, they're also asking for feedback. Um, so I think leaders will have to create a format that works well, right, for their team members. And for me, it's been being able to solicit structured feedback every few weeks, but also ensuring in my one-on-ones with our team that I'm soliciting feedback and I'm giving them the space and grace to, to provide feedback as well. When you're having these conversations, either in an open forum or in the one-to-one -one format, are there any questions that you return to which you find particularly effective at soliciting useful pieces of information through the feedback. So that could be things that 
are not going so well, things that you need to improve. That could be opportunities that things are where things are going well. Um, but I wonder if, if anything comes up for you there in terms of questions that you use to solicit good feedback. I always start with asking them how they're feeling as a person. I think it's crucial to really invest in your people in the sense that who they are as individuals matter. And so life is happening. There's so much going on with the pandemic. And I think every conversation starts with, how are you doing? How's your family doing? Are you making time for self-care? Is there anything I could be doing more of to be able to support you in that effort? I want us to talk about the latest project we engaged in. Would love to hear more about what you thought went well. I'd love to hear more about what really excited you about the outcome. What are some of the things that you had potentially had in mind that would be a great accomplishment? Did we get there? And if we didn't, what what could we do to make sure we get there in the future? I mean, I will have these driving questions, but I want it to be an open forum for them to be able to just be reflective on an interaction on an experience, on an opportunity, on a project we engaged in and be able to have a two-way conversation about it. The sense I get from your philosophy of leadership is that it's very mindful, whether this is getting to know your team as people first on your listening tour or getting to understand them as people in your one-to-ones, it really does seem like you put the human first in a lot of those cases. Do you have any inkling or can you see the the kind of path of where this mindful leadership stemmed from? I'm very curious how you came to place such emphasis on the human and personal aspect of the teams you have and the people you work with. It's been developed over time. I would be lying to you if I told you that this was the leader I started off as, right? I started (laughs) my career, you know, in my early 20s, and I had a lot of learning and growing to make. And my mentors were really an integral part of this, what I like to refer to this growth mindset and being Mm -hmm. able to create conducive environments that allow folks to be courageous that allow folks to be vulnerable, that allow folks to be their best self. And this really was a learned behavior. And I feel really fortunate to have had so many mentors that I learned this from. And the minute I started implementing it in my own work with my teams, I saw how invaluable it is to approach every conversation, every interaction from a real humane and human perspective, um, because that's how you get the best out of people. And I truly care about people. You can't be in the nonprofit sector and live a life of life of purpose if you don't truly care about people. And I want to ensure that all my interactions with my team starts from that place where folks feel cared for and, and feel supported. I think that's the best way to thrive. Those are the best environments. Those are the environments that enable you to create a cohesive culture where people are happy to come to work um, and they work hard and play hard. I love this sense that you really don't have to compromise on your work. A stigma that I've observed before is that people in certain professions feel like they're really trading time for money and the work that they do isn't fulfilling. It it just kind of keeps food on the table, keeps the lights on, but it doesn't really help them thrive. And the, the approach that you're underscoring here is really seeks to remedy that because you start from an understanding of who the person is and what makes them tick. And then once you've created this alignment, you've set expectations, you've understood that them personally, then and only then do you talk about work when you have the rapport? It's almost like building trust ahead of when in the trust life cycle, trust is usually built. If you want to be a transformational leader, you have to incorporate that. There are going to be challenges no matter what sector you're in. And in order to be able to rise above those challenges and to be able to think with a steady mind and be supportive during those hard times, Trust and rapport are key. 
right? Showing that you care about folks and that folks have the space, as I had mentioned earlier on in our conversation, to make mistakes. It's the only way to grow. And it's the only way to ensure that your team members are able to be transformative leaders as well. There's a a phrase you've used a couple of times today is uh, space and grace and giving your team space and grace. I wonder if this ties to the ability for your team to step into a growth mindset, because it seems to me that as a leader, you are there to empower them and then, but also to, to step back and let them do their work. And part of that is giving them the freedom to make mistakes, which is a big part of growth mindset. So I wonder how you think about, I, I know growth mindset is important for you, but whether giving that your team this space and grace, does that, how that empowers them specifically and how, how does that let them grow as well in your eyes? It will manifest in a number of different ways. So I know during one of our last conversations, we talked about experiential learning, that hands-on experience. When you operate through a growth mindset and you realize that you are a lifelong learner, then you want to make sure that there are hands-on opportunities for your team members to grow. And that then leads to that space and grace, right? You can't expect your employees to perform at their highest level if they haven't been introduced to how you navigate a difficult conversation, Mm. how you debrief effectively so that you can take away and adapt learnings for the next opportunity. So for me, they go hand in hand. This growth mindset encourages me and motivates me to ensure that I am constantly allowing my team to learn. I'm modeling, I'm learning from them. And this hands-on approach gives them that empowerment And that encouragement to iterate, to be creative, to come to the team with ideas and to know that I'm always going to be listening and I want to absorb and I want to leverage their thought partnership and their support. I know I've been lit up just recently in in conversations with my team about what could be possible, what the next three to five years should look like for the foundation and being able to have them participate in brainstorm sessions and be able to kind of reiterate what I'm hearing and then be able to think through together how they could be applied. And that that goes such a long way to just adaptive learning and transformational leadership and then ultimately being able to create a culture and a shared mission for how we approach the work, right? Every nonprofit has the mission that they're trying to work towards, but then there should also be that team culture, that team mission, those non-negotiables that we agree upon, whether it's respect, constant admiration for one's contributions, all of that contributes to a conducive learning environment. I think this idea of the team mission is really intriguing because most leaders who listen to subject matter know, I think, the importance of having a mission, the importance of having something that's bigger than yourself to work towards. But you're also saying not just to have an external goal that you're moving towards, but have an internal mission as a team as well. So what exactly does a team mission look like in your eyes? When I was last in Miami and I facilitated a training around culture building, I encourage the team to create a name for the team, to think about what our personal mission, what's driving us to our ultimate goals. And so we had a lot of interactive sessions where we built out a list of nine or 10 different qualities and aspirations and motivations to our work. Then as a team, we agreed upon how we would communicate that to one another and how that would be applied to the work on a daily basis. We also even outlined how we were going to address difficult conversations, right? So the team mission is such that you've created a roadmap for how you will interact as a team and how you will approach the work. Easy work, the hard work, the challenging work, 
I found the team so inspired and excited about the exercise and how mm. even now when we meet as a team, we'll remind one another. Uh, we recently had an amazing event where we were able to announce our Prodigy Scholarship winner and the process leading up to that event, the day of the event, the ability for the team to be able to communicate with one another just with their eyes because we have done all that work initially to really have a deep understanding for one another, folks' willingness to roll up their sleeves in the moment and then make the time to debrief and highlight the wins and highlight where there could have been improvements, but do it in such a supportive and respectful manner reminds me of why it's so important to do that initial work, right? To be able to establish that team mission and drive um, because it really will dictate almost every interaction, any mm. circumstance that arises. I think a, a good illustration here is looking at the Prodigy Scholarship event and how you could have run that in an alternative situation if you were not concerned with the impact on your staff's well-being, but instead were only concerned about, for example, the amount of engagement the event generated or executing it in the shortest amount of time. And you can go down that road and you may even pull off a good event, but the staff behind the scenes are going to be burned out and tired. If you're building a culture where you're having these conversations of where's the foundation going to be in three years and five years, you need people who are aligned for that long-term mission. And if you're having these engagements where you're not regularly touching base with them, it's it's going to fall out of alignment. So what seems really powerful about your approach, Tanya, is that by virtue of being a, a mindful leader, you're able to have these regular touch points with your team of just saying, how are you feeling? How are you doing? How is the work going? Which acts as these small emotional feedback loops. So you're constantly understanding what your team's mental state is in real time. So you're much more plugged in than you are detached. Thank you, Ben. And and one thing I think is also worth noting recently, again, I don't know how many leaders engage in this, but thinking about my just having transitioned into the role three months ago and that kind of like integrating leadership trainings where I'm listening, right? So that I am able to understand what they need from me and they're learning what I need from them. But I also, over the last two weeks, I've been having what's called a kind of workflow discussion, mm -hmm. recognizing that I don't want the team burnt out. I want the team being listened to and cared for. Um, they're going to do their best work when they're feeling cared for. And mm -hmm. I want them to feel like they're growing and thriving. So what I had the team work on is what I refer to as a workflow document, where they listed much of the work that they were responsible for day to day. Everything that has shifted and changed over the last few years, because many of them have been here at minimum two years, some as much as five or seven years. Mm -hmm. And the goal of that exercise was for me once again to touch base on where they're spending their time, how they want to be more effective, and how I could support that. So one example, I had one of my team members walk me through their workflow document, and they had it in various buckets, whether it was you know program management, administrative work, outcomes management, if you will. And as we talk through it, we were able to say, you know what, in a future state, could we have someone, an additional person on our team that could work on X, Y, and Z so that it would free you up to be more external facing as our director of program? Or is there an opportunity? I see that there's some administrative functions that are more finance related. How do we reshape that so that you're giving overarching support with some of the folks that are working alongside you that have a dotted line could potentially take some of this on. And so this will be iterative and will be worked upon over time. But again, it's an opportunity to constantly check in on where a leader is at, the nature of their work, how that workflow is being administered and supportive, and where I could potentially plug in to alleviate the load. 
This really seems like a tool to understand the entire process of your team. I think what's potent about this is for a lot of people just doing their work, doing their nine to five, we're so in the weeds of our work that sometimes we forget actually what it's like, what we're doing, what these buckets look like. So when you say, hold on a second, Ben, let's map out your workflow. So you do this with operations, you do this with marketing, you do this with the podcast, then you're able to, instead of driving the train at 200 miles an hour, you're able to step off the station and watch the train pass by and think, do I want it to go that direction? Maybe we need to adjust or put something new in this carriage or bring on some other support. There's kind of this contrast between having very intimate points of feedback in the one-to-ones in these check-ins, but then to also support that with a 30,000 foot view and say, as a whole, this is your role. Do we want to make any significant changes that's going to impact that day-to-day? I couldn't agree more. And what I want to emphasize to listeners, this isn't micromanaging, right? This isn't my attempt to get in the weeds. This is my attempt to have clear understanding so that I can position my leaders to thrive and to feel supported. And it's such a helpful tool for me as well, because we will eventually be engaging in a strategic plan. What better tools to use to be able to really map out, again, to your point, where we see ourselves in the next three to five years and how each of the individuals that are currently on my team, how they should be operating towards those overarching goals. And so it's an exercise that will go on over time. Um, and will help dictate what a future state would look like. But there are some immediate adjustments that one can take when you kind of step away and look at it from 30,000 feet and determine what adjustments can be made to be successful and to feel accomplished, right? We all want to be successful, but we also want to believe that we're bringing our best selves to the work and that we're making a true impact. That's a great point. The the company can be successful and even we can be successful, but in the employee's mind, what takes their vocation from good to great is being able to do that in service of of something, of a bigger cause. One of the things that, that strikes me with the workflow mapping that you may have come across if you've stretched the timeline this far is that the pandemic really shifted just about everybody's role and the way that we're working in a a workflow in December 2019 is going to look very different to a workflow in July 2021. One of the, the things that struck me one of the last times we spoke was how the pandemic evolved your relationship to bringing both your personal self and your professional self to work. Could you speak a bit about the impact that the pandemic had on you and how that evolved the selves that you bring to your work? Absolutely. I think I've always tried to bring my entire self to work, but I also recognize that as a C-level executive who has two kids under 11 at home, you oftentimes also try to separate the two so that one wouldn't think you're not entirely focused on the mission and the vision of your organization. I think what happened with the pandemic was that everyone's world collided. There there really was no separation in that moment because at least for me, I had two kids at home that were virtual learning and the work didn't stop, both professionally and personally, and so where do you find a balance? Is there a balance? And how do you communicate that to your team so that, in essence, you get a little bit of empathy, but there's also a level of humility with being vulnerable and recognizing there may be some time shifts that have to shift now. I may be working a little later than I normally would, or I may be pulling in some hours in the morning, not with the expectation that my team is responding to an email at six in the morning, But just recognizing that because there was now this new dynamic of bringing your work life and your home life together, how do you also extend that to your team members? Many of my team members now have children, right? And camp is still not what it was pre-pandemic. So again, giving team members the flexibility to say, hey, you know, on my calendar, this is a time block where I pick up my kids from camp. 
and knowing that they have a leader that can comprehend and understand that. And that does not take away from the great work that they're doing, nor are they being penalized for living and being human and having to pivot in this moment. If you come out of this the same, there's a problem. Like people have shifted. Now there's this hybrid model, right? You mentioned it a moment Mm -hmm. ago in a conversation with a friend of yours that folks are now able to have maybe a three-day work week from home and one day in the office or vice versa and maximizing those moments, but being able to communicate to your team that there's a level of flexibility that they're going to be entitled and that we will work together to find a happy medium where they feel supported. Something to underscore here is that the pandemic was such a singular event that no one had been through before that the principle to accept that we don't have all the answers and to have the humility and grace to be able to share that with our teams, with our peers, goes a really long way because just like you, they are figuring this out for the first time. They're figuring out how this changes their working dynamic, the hybrid work environment. And to actually be able to say to them, guys, we're being more flexible. We haven't experienced this before. So we'd ask for your patience in in our adjustment phase. It humanizes you as a leader, ultimately. That is something I think I, I really like about your approach is that Yes, you are treating your team as humans, but you are also making it very clear that you're a human yourself. Like, this is when I pick up kids from camp, or this is when you can pick up your kids from camp. It's a very different conversation to Tanya, the the CEO, compared to Tanya, the mum, or Tanya, the wife. Like, you create these very kind of human points of contact with your team. It is bringing your entire self to work. That should be applauded. And that should be honored. I don't know that I have to leave the fact that I'm a mom at the door or that I have Mm. to leave at the door that I have elderly family members that I support. We can have those conversations. And again, it doesn't take away from the focus and the energy and drive I put into this important work daily, but also giving ourselves the grace to be able to flex and to be incorporating it all. Uh, recently, during one of our staff meetings, I incorporated Wellness Fridays, where we're going to be up and about during our meeting on Fridays. So people can either take a walk. The last meeting, I was on my cardio machine. And so that was the true test. <laughs> Could I have the entire meeting and not be out of breath? <laughs> um, the team members found it so amusing. And they said, you know what? You get stuck behind your desk. And more so, there's this misconception that when you're working remotely, you have all this extra time when in essence... Mm-hmm. You find yourself not giving yourself the necessary break to walk and to take a breath and and get some fresh air. So every Friday, we're taking that meeting outdoors. However people want to be active, that's what we're going to incorporate in our our Friday meetings. I love that. Well, hopefully the quality of the meeting comes up as your 5K or 10K (laughs) run time comes down. So that's the metric to measure. So speaking of remote work and leading teams remotely. I want to touch on your previous role as CEO of Pencils of Promise. And most of the team, when you were leading that organization, was spread across Africa, Southeast Asia, and Central America as well. So given that you were leading this team virtually always remotely, how did you apply that same approach of mindful personal leadership in making your employees feel supported and inspired and motivated? A lot of what we discussed during the course of this conversation was applied to that team as well. When I think back to some of the conversations I had with our team in Ghana or in Laos or in Guatemala, it was that in-person time, that opportunity to have a listening tour and to develop trust and rapport out of the gate. It was prioritizing virtual meetings that had video so people can see one another and interact. It was prioritizing my interactions with some of my senior leadership team that were meeting with our global teams frequently enough to be able to give me updates on what was working, what wasn't working, and then being able to approach those conversations with the team when I traveled. 
So I, you know, I traveled extensively to the country that we operated in so that I could have that in-person FaceTime for pop in particular, because uh, much of our programming took place at the school that we operated in my opportunity to see the work firsthand and to be able to ask questions and to listen and to position our team members on the ground as resident experts on the work and incorporate that in the way I was communicating it to donors or supporters or external stakeholders made them feel listened to, made them feel appreciated. I recall having one conversation with a team member that was always very anxious when, you know, C-level executives came onto the field, right? Fretful that there may be some criticism about around how the work was being approached. My approach was always to come from a place of humility and understanding and deep appreciation for their contributions and being able to learn from them and asking questions and again, being an active listener. And I think all of that enabled me to develop really trust and rapport despite the distance, right, between where I was sitting and, and where they were sitting. And as I mentioned with my current team, my previous team, I cared about hearing what was going on in their lives, wanted to know how their wife was doing, or if they weren't married, how their significant other was doing, how their kids Mm -hmm. were doing. Um, During the pandemic, checking in to make sure people were feeling cared for, recognizing that there were some of our employees that had COVID or were caring for a sick relative that had COVID and being able to provide them with again, my term, that space and grace to be able to manage their workflow and for others, sometimes relocating to support family members. So just, again, working from a place of of empathy and also constantly expressing gratitude for the ability for folks to pivot in these uncertain times and giving folks the space to turn off as well. We would implement a lot of like mental health days or early dismissals or closures just so folks could try to find the balance. What really jumps out at me here is the continuity between leading a company remotely and leading a company in person. Those principles stay the same. There isn't this huge other playbook that you jump to. The ingredients that go into great human relationships are the same. And yeah, it certainly seems like you've got that down to a process that you're able to follow and and engage with your team while still giving them the flexibility that they, they have as individuals. So one of the other really interesting parts about you is that you're a graduate from Coro's New York Leadership Program. And you touched on it earlier, which is that this is an experiential program, which is set in and around the Big Apple, New York City. I know that this program had a a big impact on you. Could you speak to why the experiential aspect was so valuable and why experiential learning is so valuable for leaders? Successful experiential learning doesn't just transform leaders. It transforms communities. It transforms teams. And for me personally, being part of Coro not only exposed me to a network of professionals that I could call upon for thought partnership and support, but as you mentioned, the Big Apple was my playground. I knew early on I wanted to live a life of purpose and that my calling would be to work in the nonprofit sector. And while um, a great number of my coral leaders that I work closely with were coming from different areas within the nonprofit sector, whether it was education or housing, one thing remained true, that they wanted to learn from different leaders. They wanted to learn operationally how other organizations approached their work. They wanted to be able to leverage their years of experience to help formulate a strategy or a purpose-driven website or a strategic plan. And so being able to be part of Coro where you had such intimate exposure to the inner workings of an organization and were able to apply your learnings while ultimately acquiring new skills and new learning, you can't beat that, right? You can learn a lot from a book, Ben. We all have, you know, I graduated undergrad, I pursued my master's, 
but I don't think there was anything more transformative than the learning I had during those nine to 10 months with Coral, where I was meeting with the team weekly for a full day while simultaneously meeting in the evenings and on weekends to put together strategies for the organizations we were partnering with throughout our program. There are so many learnings that I still pull from today in my leadership, and it's been more than a decade. And I can't tell you the countless times that I've reached out to folks in my coral network for support with every transition I've made throughout my career. Something I've been thinking about this year is how so many of the disciplines that we have, it's very easy to think, oh, there's a book for that, or there's a course for that, or whatever kind of source of information. But we've got to remember that those books and those courses, they were all created by people. And if you're able to get close to the person, the root source of the idea, that's going to be the fastest way to learn, combined with the fact that you're also applying that learning in real time. So it's not just theoretical, but you're taking your your lesson, what, however you're studying, and then you're saying, let's go and apply this to the strategy now. So it seems that there was a, a key component of this leadership learning was that there was a very small gap between the theory and the implementation afterwards. And that was intentional. Mm-hmm. I have, my God, I've gone through various fellowship programs. I've been in school for great majority of my life, right? I've gone through various trainings. But to your point, when you're able to participate in a training and then quickly apply that learning and adapt that learning and to shorten that gap between what you've learned and what you're applying, that's where you grow and learn. There's nothing more Mm. transformative than being able to learn in real time and be able to apply it and be able to make mistakes potentially that you grow from in that moment. So the last segment that I would like to touch on today is a pretty defining aspect of your career, which is that you've built a career as a leader in non-for-profit organizations. And I'm curious how, in your mind, leading a non-for-profit team creates a different culture compared to leading a for-profit equivalent. I've had experience working for the for-profit and oftentimes the bottom line is, you know, whatever widgets you're selling or the revenue that you are garnering from a particular mm-hmm. product, right? And this is certainly not to take away from that because I've worked with a number of amazing folks that are in the for-profit that have still found ways to really hone in on their philanthropic endeavors. But I think when I think about teams that work at nonprofits, you really are approaching the work daily through a lens of purpose, right? The bottom line is not a dollar amount. It's not a line on a graph. The bottom line are the lives that you've impacted, the lives that you've changed, how you've been able to move to your point earlier from good to great, how you've been able to provide resources and opportunities for a community that otherwise would not have had those opportunities. Here at the Latin Grammy Cultural Foundation, being able to provide access to an education that these students may not have had access to otherwise had it not been for our scholarships or our comprehensive programming. You know, the motivation is really stemming from that mission and that purpose. And I think that's what separates your nonprofit work from your for-profit. I think that's a great line. The, The bottom line is not a line on a graph. The bottom line is the lives that you have changed. You, you really are rooted in impact and to be able to judge a, a company and to judge a culture by that is, I see quite a clear parallel between wanting to give your team fulfillment and meaning and being able to draw that very concretely. So saying, well, why does this matter? Well, look at the ways in which we are changing the perception of Latin music across the world. Look at the ways in which we are reforming education in some of the most disadvantaged countries in the world. It's a very tangible impact that you can get behind. And it lights you up. When you're working in the nonprofit sector, you have to be lit up and you're lit up by the mission and you're lit up by the contributions you make to moving the needle 
for the constituents that you serve. And that's been what has always inspired and motivated me. And I have been so lucky and so fortunate to work with team members that are equally motivated in that way. That is super well said. And I think uh, a great place for us to uh, wrap our conversation today. Our last question that we ask our guests, Tanya, is what does culture mean to you? Culture is being able to have a healthy, conducive work environment that is focused on individuals and making a difference. The word that really jumps out to me there is having a healthy environment. The idea of valuing individuals as people and setting healthy expectations. It seems to me that this all contributes to your philosophy of before even setting the first goal, make sure that you have set the firm foundation for a healthy relationship. That's where it all starts. So Tanya, thank you first of all for the conversation. This has been a lot of fun and I'm sure our listeners will have learned a lot, as have I. If people want to find you online and keep up with you, where can they follow your journey? You can find me on LinkedIn, Tanya Ramos Puig. You can find me on Instagram, um, where you get to see a nice introduction to what life looks like, right? As a CEO and a mom of two. And I think sometimes life looks messy. So you're more than welcome to follow me on, on Instagram as well. Fantastic. Tanya, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. Hey, it's Ben here. Just before you head off, one quick thing. This podcast teaches you the skill of empathetic communication. And if you're interested in accelerating your empathetic communication and to start applying it to your brand and business, we've created an actionable five-step checklist which breaks down the exact steps you need to take to unlock this skill and start creating messages that connect with your customers and employees' heads and hearts. You can download it for free over on our website, weareastutely.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time for another episode of Subject Matter.